Well, hello, everyone. I want to thank the Satanic Estate for having us back. Thank you so much. We're always super humbled to to be asked to do things, but definitely to be asked back. So thank you so, so much. And on top of wanting to say thank you so much, we want to say thank you to Morbidly Beautiful, which is our podcast home and network as well as family. And just to remind everyone, Morbidly Beautiful is your McCall home away from home with horror news, reviews, editorials, and more. And they support everyone in the horror community with special effects, artists, indie filmmakers, writers, women, LGBTQ folks, and so much more. And we've been really happy to be part of the Spooky team for almost two years now. And we really would encourage people to go and visit them at morebillybeautiful.com to check out all the more great content that they have. Thank you, Jess. So welcome, folks, to I Spin on Your Podcast, a monthly horror podcast brought to you by the Spinsters of Horror. This is a time once a month where Jess puts down her bloody knitting needles, and I step away from the TV to discuss horror movies and sometimes other horror mediums with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. So as we all know, I am Jess. I'm Kelly. <laughs> and we flew on our broomsticks in the horror scene of July of 2018 to assist in filling the void of female voices and podcasting with our show, I Spit on Your Podcast. As women, we knew that the genre was dominated by the masculine perspective, so we felt like it was important to celebrate and encourage female horror fans while at the same time remaining inclusive to all who love horror has to offer. So if you can find me behind the scenes editing and crafting while Kelly is normally found in her dark basement with a black mug of coffee on heading up our social media and we're really excited to be here. Excellent. So for today's live presentation and live episode, we're going to be talking about the monstrous female vampire. So historically, female vampires were portrayed as predatory lesbians or as subservient to a master in the form of Dracula. They were the brides, a means to bring victims to the sorry to the male vampire. Modernized versions of the brides have them liberated from any master and are unconventional women fighting the patriarchy and the traditions that try to keep them submissive. Through the films Byzantium from 2017, Bit 2019, and Bliss also from 2019, we see the full spectrum of these women. We see the rise of Carmilla. So pick your poison and listen on if you dare. So first off, we're going to get started talking about Carmilla. (laughs) It's our little book here and folks that will be listening later. Here's the nicely short novella. This is the lesbian vampire story that came before Dracula. So Dracula was actually written 1897. Carmilla was written 1871. So this book, if you haven't read it briefly, it's a first person account from a woman named Laura, a young English woman who falls prey to a beautiful vampire. It's also written in the first person account. Kind of like how Stoker's novel was. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a story of two females with definite lesbian coding. We couldn't have outright lesbianism in 1871, could we? Well, no, because this novel looks at these anxieties that are often surrounding female sexuality. So back in the time that that novel would have been written, a lot of young women would have had very close and intimate relationships, and they could sometimes be coded as queer, but that was not necessarily the case. That was just the only time women ever had any companionship was through other women. So by bringing that idea of relationships between women, very close intimate relationships between women together, you get this concept of this woman named Carmilla, who brings out these anxieties around female sexuality because she's not only just a predator of men she's also a predator of women and this would make the lesbian vampire scary oh yes yes so throughout like literature for female vampires cinema and female vampires which we'll talk about movies a little bit later on 
The predatory lesbian was unfortunately such a common, common trope. Carmilla herself, throughout this book anyways, seems pretty disinterested in men, at least sexually. She kills and lures in young women, so she is a predator, and she does seem to be shrouded in this taboo sexuality of lesbianism. And the lesbian, especially way back when, was a woman that was crossing many boundaries, many taboos of what was, you know, societally accepted sexuality. So she was deviant, abhorrent, an abomination because that was a very Christian organized society. And that was not sexually accepted <laughs> sexuality, right? What was what was okay back then? To be married, to procreate and have heterosexual sexuality. But for Carmilla, our unconventional woman, she's non-procreative, she's unmarried, and so it seems she's a homosexual. Right. And this rise of this renewed interest in vampires in the 19th century is often linked to this idea of sex and power. And female vampires are very prominent in this. And Carmilla was a great example of this figure because she comes out as this self-fetitizing predator. She's not only going after other women just to sustain her life and her immortality, she's going after what she believes are reflections of herself. She's acting out her own murder over and over and over again just to almost feed her own bloodlust. And this is like this acting out this like fantasy of constant embracement of immortality, but through the ideas of the women, right? And through the ideas of a woman, through a relationship through another woman on top of that as well. And that is actually a really old concept. I don't think it's super common now, but a really old theme and an old concept in, in books and movies that homosexuals, lesbians were actually narcissists that really just wanted to make love to their reflections, right? And Carmilla would fit into that trope because they're young women like herself well, when she died and became a vampire anyways. So lesbians around this time, they were very morbid and they were decadent. They were rich and they seduced the very youthful and powerless women. Whenever we talk back in those times, when they were ever talking types of uh, lesbian women or any type of uh, intimate relationship between women is often they're considered female predators, which is often what the female vampire is often related to. She's not only linked to overt uh, sexual expression, she is a female predator. She is the mother of evil. She is all fallen women and she strikes, strikes fear in the heart of men. And they're often depicted more sexualized creatures than male vampires because they're lustful and they're all about defiling. Absolutely. And we actually, it's a very early episode of ours, <laughs> episode three, where we talk about vampiric sexuality. Um, it was one of my old, old favorites, but we did touch upon this with a about, you know, Victorian sexuality, Dracula and female vampires. So take a listen to that if you would like. But the female vampire, this female predator. So what? Well, sorry, we'll go back to lesbianism, which vampires were often seen as back then. But lesbians, because they were seen so monstrous in literature and in film, they were showing us that, well, lesbians were monsters, essentially, to put it honestly and bluntly. So it was like this warning to women. So beware homosexuality, there's deadly consequences, but also showing lesbians as these monstrous deviant predators that are out just to kill and victimize our women, it alleviated the male fears about homosexuality because they were worried like, oh, lesbians, they threaten our ego and our masculinity. They're gonna take our women away. But if they're monsters, well, they're not going to do that, but we're going to kill them for sure. <laughs> And then, another, and then another concept that increases that monstrosity of the female vampire is that she's literally 
an undead corpse. She's living between life and death and they crave nothing but human blood. She is part of the object and women are constantly associated with that which is object, which is monstrous. The female vampire is always increasing that objection by having this bloodlust that drives her to stalk her prey in the night, to be kind of very sexual with her prey and also feed off of them in terms of like nourishing herself. But she ends up also nourishing others as she brings more into her fold. Absolutely. So essentially Camilla is like the reverse, the subversion of the heteronormative and male-centered world to which vampires were kind of constricted to and put into this box after Dracula. Because once you see Dracula, we see his brides. Definitely in Dracula from literally in Dracula, the first Dracula movie, minus Nosferatu, who is very solo. Um, Dracula had his brides and got to feed off vermin and if was given humans if he so desired. He was in, in control, but Carmilla is in control. And we always forget about this very important story for, for female vampires and, well, female monsters overall. Yeah, because she was the first female vampire to have her own agency and to be on in control of her own, um, not only just body, but also her own mission and, and seeking her own food when we, like Destiny. Kelly had brought. Des- exactly, Destiny. <laughs> well, like, as, Kelly, as you brought up already how important it was, when we see female vampires 28 years later with Dracula, we see them as the brides. They're under uh, vampire they're under their master's control they're also forced to wait to feed when he says it's okay and when they do feed they're only allowed to feed on that of children which would we, we can also go back wake all the way back to lilith but it is yeah. a sense of control these female vampires stay in a state of control and we've seen this we it, this continues on as a trend throughout the 70s like the 60s the 70s 80s getting into the 90s our female vampires don't have much agency and we lose that idea of carmilla and being a, a solo vampire vampire on her own hunting and going for prey and finding a connection with someone but then we start getting into the 2000s and the female vampire changes she had takes she takes back that agency and all of a sudden we're start, we're starting to see stories of female vampires who are not only on their own they're not answering to a master and when they are answering to a master they're fighting back they're literally taking back the night as creatures absolutely <laughs> as creatures of the night and i just wanted to read a short passage from the book this is spinster's reading time Um, And literature from the 1800s is quite different. But Laura, our protagonist of the story, who is a victim of Carmilla in a lot of ways, but in other ways, they were like that greatest friends. They became very close physically and emotionally. And so it's a very interesting story. Sometimes after an hour of apathy, my strange and beautiful companion would take my hand and hold it with a fond pressure, renewed again and again. Blushing softly, seen in my face with languid and burning eyes, and breathing so fast that her dress rose and fell with a tumultuous respiration. It was like the ardor of a lover. It embarrassed me. It was hateful and yet overpowering. And with gloating eyes, she drew me to her, and her hot lips traveled along my cheek in kisses, and she would whisper, almost in sobs, you are mine. You shall be mine. You and I are one forever. So it's very just like passionate, but obsessive. And she's a monster. So Laura's like actually quite attracted to this woman. She's attracted to Carmilla, but she's also very repulsed by Carmilla. And that is that. And there's a lot you could even read. We're not going to go into the queer aspect of this per se, but there's a lot in that passage in itself about the female vampire and where she's a 
predatory lesbian. And we see that. So the other agent of chaos, we'll say, is Lilith. And I know a lot of things come back to Lilith, a lot of our research, a lot of the things that we talk about, but a lot of things stem back to her. She is the mother of evil. She's the archetype and that she's Adam's first disobedient wife, right? Twice Lilith called upon God to free her from her subservience to Adam. And her punishment was that she would have to kill her own children. But she accepted this punishment in return for her freedom. And she was fine with killing her own children, right? She preferred the death of her own children over having to return to Adam and obey her. Her freedom was much more important to her. And I always get into Lilith every time I have (laughs) these conversations because Lilith is the OG female vampire. Like Kelly said, she refused to allow Adam to control her and to let her engage and she left him to engage with demons and by rejecting god and adam she was forced to take on the mantle of the demon she became our first female vampire by seeking out the blood of the infants and i know that this carries on later on with our brides they're always will be seen as the mothers of evil and you know and lilith was part of birthing evil by birthing hundreds of demons because she was always be that bridal woman who had unbridled promiscuity and she was promiscuous all these other demons and has colored her as a very um, demonic, very fallen, very untrustworthy woman, the the mother of evil. And thus that mantle gets placed onto female vampires because they are thus similar, right? And they are thus the same abject figure, the same mother who eats her own children. Another anti-mother will will say, which I uh, enjoy, um, (laughs) but our patriarchal (laughs) narrative says that rebellious women are not allowed to take part in any normal feminine behaviors, especially not motherhood. Because you're not a good woman if you're not a mother and a vampire cannot create life technically, I guess in the, in the normal, in the normal way, right? Uh -uh. Uh, Women cannot be created equal. Lilith was not seen as equal because in kind of Christian mythology and a lot of those different types of like Western religions, women were not equal. We've been repressed for centuries. So you know, Lilith's path was essentially straight to rebellion. And then of course, damnation. She was, she felt free, but a rebellious spirit like our female vampire. And that's like the heart of the female vampire is about rebellion, freedom, autonomy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's transformation and it's important to a vampire. The lady vampire, she's active and she's independent in her own narrative, which is always so crucial and important when it comes to that of the female vampire. She is a career woman. She is out there <laughs> searching for love, hunting for blood, you know, just the whole nature of immortality. You know, she has goals and resources and she's not and she's free to not prescribe to any kind of, you know, patriarchal, sexual or social morals. She is her own woman and she will go out. However, you know, but we're only seeing this narrative now in the last like almost like 10, 15 years. We haven't seen that narrative before. She was constantly always the bride, the one who was subservient to her master. Mm -hmm. And so getting into like female vampires in in cinema, generally speaking. So they're often portrayed uh, as, again, the female predator, like Carmilla, our lesbian vampire, the mother of evil, Lilith, our rebellious demoness, or the fallen woman. We're a sex worker. We're a public woman. We are to be shamed, like that type of thing. But they're lustful. They're defiling creatures. And like Jess said, we—they're. If you see any vampire movies from the seventies, 
we're 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 because i'm a vampire we are tonight <laughs> folks um hyper <laughs> hyper sexualized and like carmilla kind of started that trend of just literally like i read in here like the big full red wet lips mm-hmm. and big eyes and our heaving bosoms and they're always in some kind of negligee that's revealing and everything's very just kind of penetrative penetrative sorry and sexual by like just the biting of the neck and being a vampire and especially if it's female on female because well we don't need to get into the male gaze but of course that's prevalent in a lot of those vampire movies from the 70s and still just generally in a lot of female vampire movies not in the ones that we will be talking about tonight though thankfully yes (laughs) (laughs) the other thing the last thing i'll say so one of the things is (sighs) The thing about, yeah, you said vampirism is transformative, right? Becoming a vampire for these women, especially in the movies we'll talk about, provides, yeah, bodily autonomy, freedom. There's this wonderful power in being something that's not our typical brides, right? Mm. These are independent vampires, Mm. like you said, in charge of their own story, in charge of their own destiny. And what is more fearful than an ambitious woman that's out there very confident subverting all these really terrible misogynistic attitudes towards women and just putting herself out in the world and doing whatever she wants she definitely has to be (laughs) killed kill them (laughs) but cinematically all this started with dracula's daughter in 1936 also a predatory lesbian, but that's 1936, right? So do we want to get into our movies for? Absolutely. So like I said, a lot of early works were really stemming from Carmilla. They could be seen as misogynistic and anti-lesbian, but these films challenge all kinds of tropes and we'll see the rise of a new type of Carmilla. And so the first movie we're going to talk about is Byzantium. So just a brief synopsis that I'll give about all of the movies. So for Byzantium, mayhem follows when two female vampires, a mother and daughter, are running from a kindred group and take refuge, sorry, refuge at a seaside British community. So Byzantium, when I first saw this film about a year ago, I loved it because it was a new idea of the concept of women in uh, vampiric women in a horror movie. And what's really interesting is the name of the film. So Kelly and I were like, hmm, Byzantium, let's kind of go back and look a little bit as to why we would call a film such as this. Why would it be important? It's particularly in the tales of these two women, Clara and her daughter, Ella. But we are going to focus on the female vampire, Clara. So and I'll like brief little history about women in Byzantium. What did you expect? Women were expected to learn domestic duties and encouraged not to learn or to read. It was either get married or go and live in a convent. You're a wife or you're a nun. Sounds familiar, right? Women were not considered equal. They were property. Yep. That, that's, that, that runs with that too. <laughs> but then one of the things that was most really interesting to me was how women were treated in Byzantium was often men really appreciated the female charm, but they felt that this was better used in the services of prostitution and being mistresses. And that any kind of moral purity for a woman was reserved for family female members only. So prostitutes were at the bottom of the social ladder. They were known as public women and they were often treated like slaves and prisoners. And then eventually mistresses of brothels would go around buying girls from poor families even though this was illegal so that they can fill those brothels for all the men who are looking for those various mistresses and prostitutes and this is interesting because in 
our movie, Clara comes from this time period and she was herself plucked from the beach and literally sold into um, prostitution by uh, a soldier who was like, this will be my mistress. And her life as a prostitute in that story begins. But then she ends up taking that narrative and making it something her own. Absolutely. So the movie is called Byzantium, but the refuge that um, is like the main one that you see in the movie is it's an old hotel that's not really, nothing's really being done with it called the Byzantium. So it's highly, highly significant for the overall themes of this movie. So Clara, she's our Carmilla character, but her her story and her history, her story um, was is very, very it's important. It's tragic, it's devastating. Mm-hmm. But, so there was, like Jess said, they she was plucked off of the, the beach by, we're gonna call him the captain, because I don't even think he necessarily <laughs> has a name, but he doesn't need a name, he doesn't deserve a name. Johnny Lee Miller. <laughs> there we go, fine. The captain <laughs> takes him, yes, takes her, puts her into a brothel, is probably like 16 years old, yeah, she and is, yeah. that's where she lives and she grows up, and he regularly visits her, beats her, rapes her, brutalizes her for years and years and years. But he says to her, I've given you your profession. Enjoy your life, whore. And I was like, okay, mental note on what's going to happen to you later on. <laughs> but it's terrible. But, you know, as she grows up through this, she's taught essentially sexuality as performance. She becomes very good. And the actress that plays her is stunningly beautiful. And this is, so when she becomes an adult, this is all she knows how to do, right? Because she grew up in this time and she doesn't know how to really do anything else. But she also does this very, very well. She's She's very good with people. She's very good with men. She understands men. I think if you spend a decade in a brothel with tons and tons of men, you learn a lot about them and their wants, desires, and just how they work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And her story is really interesting because so she's put into this life of prostitution by by the captain and she's having to learn to navigate how to survive and live her life on top of dying of tuberculosis at the same time, too. Yeah. She is determined to live and her determination to live comes from the fact that she has had a child and she has yeah. given birth to her daughter. And instead of in the time back in the time whenever you could not have children within a brothel because you can just not have that, that was, that was <laughs> yeah. bad for business. Yeah. Often these will children were even left for adoption or murdered and she gave the child up for adoption and used her, her everything in her power to be able to help ella become raised and as a young girl stuff like that until she is to the point of almost death and she has to make a really big decision and i think what clara does is amazing and that yeah. is take the, t- yep. take the gift of, of eternal life. Yeah, um, absolutely. She sees the opportunity to essentially save herself and get her daughter back. So there is in this movie, the brotherhood and the brotherhood is only of male vampires. Nobody female could ever become a vampire. So she steals the map from them to become a vampire. And like you said, she's dying. She's desperate. This is her way out. This is her salvation. And so she goes to become reborn and gain so much power that she didn't have before. So her character is slightly reminiscent of Darla from Angel and Buffy that I like a lot. You know, Darla was a dying prostitute from syphilis and she wasn't well. She becomes a vampire and she just enjoys her life again. You know, says because we know women, generally speaking, we don't have a lot of power, you know, but then once the brotherhood finds out that one, she's gone and stolen the map and become a vampire, they're not impressed. So there's this Mm -hmm. wonderful, wonderful scene where, you know, they they found out that she's a vampire and they say, what's her parentage? It's low. 
what's her job? And she says, harlot. Mm-hmm. And she asked them, and I love this part of the movie so much. And this is, I think, where, where a lot of the power is. And then because throughout the movie, you slowly get little hints of Clara's story and why she is the way she is. Why is she on the run all the time? Why does she why do her and her daughter have to keep moving? It's because she's running from the brotherhood. So Claire asked them, like, well, what do you do? Like, what is this? And he's like, we are the pointed nails of justice. <laughs> and they ask her, like, well, what are you going to do with this gift? And she says, punish those who prey on the weak. And to curb the power of men. Yes, yes. I grabbed that line too when that came out. Because exactly the way they treat her in that moment is from the onset, they call her base. And already her sex and her class is being used against her because they're like, mm, yep. you're going to be smirch our vampiric lineage. We only take in men of noble lineage so that yep. we can control what's going on in the world, kind of that like Illumina, a vampire Illuminati type idea. And she, as a woman's coming in, they're just like, we can't trust you. And she's like, yeah, well, I can't trust you either. So I'm going to use my abilities to be able to help those who are put into terrible positions like I did myself. And that's what Clara does as a vampire. She is always out there helping those who are not in the great, in the best situations with what she knows how to do. Like we do see her take women off the streets and yeah, yeah. she does run a brothel herself, but she does it in a way that's safe for them. And she's absolutely protect them. There's this other little point that I think we should move on, but there's this point where, yes, she wants to help other women. She was this woman before a hundred years ago. Like she totally understands their plight, but she kills the local pimp and says to him, the yes. world will be a more beautiful place without you in it. Yes. And she says that it, quite a few times. And I love that because yeah, she is a female Avenger, a, a vampiric Avenger. She's understand that she's been given this gift of immortality. She's not squandering it. She's like, I'm embracing this. I've embraced this lifestyle as a vampire because I have now have this ability to be able to enact vengeance on the men who will hurt and abuse and use other women, just as it's happened to me, just as it happened to my daughter. And this is why Clara is like this car- Carmilla figure because she's also a mother but she is ruthless and she's merciless in her killing and like some of the kills in this movie I'm just like yes yes go go they're pretty brutal like they're pretty bloody they're quite brutal and well she has been raised to survive and so that's what she has to do even now as a vampire thankfully we've got a lot of vampire strength and and things like that but uh yeah she's got to do what she can to protect herself and i think that's also an in essence of what carmilla is like as well we have to protect ourselves but we know that we are also a vampire so we gotta get the blood somehow <laughs> <laughs> yeah you need to accept that your new nature of what you are now but you can use that ability to help others instead of being under the subservience of men and absolutely like I said, the, the, bro- the brotherhood they want to control her and that's what they wanted to do they either control or destroy her if we can't control you we destroy you and that's what happens often with a female vampire they're usually the first to go in every kind of vampire hunt absolutely should we move on to our second movie i was gonna say i'm like this is the perfect time to jump into the film bit because here's what happens when you hunt female vampires yeah they come after you fight back (laughs) yeah so bit from 2019 um a synopsis for this one a transgender 18 year old woman on summer vacation in los angeles fights to survive after she falls in with four queer feminist vampires who try to rid the city streets of predatory men. And this is one of my favorite <laughs> vampire movies. And this is my favorite on the th- out of the three that we'll talk about tonight because, and our, okay. So our Camilla character that we w- we're going to focus on tonight is Duke because Duke who is my hero she was <laughs> literally a bride of the Dracula type character and figure in this named Vlad she is a reformed 
and super pissed off <laughs> bride. And I understand why she was so, she's so pissed off. And there's portion of it that probably kind of clouds her vision and makes her overall like destiny and goals in, in life uh-huh. a little bit short-sighted, but I still absolutely understand where she is coming from. Duke envisions a world where all women are vampires. And so she's, she's this woman that created a girl gang to subvert the brides of old. So instead of finding women to enslave and serve like Vlad did, she finds women who need and deserve the power and creates this wonderful gang of young women. So we either call it the V squad, bike club, (laughs) girls, whatever you want. Right. And this group of women are all women who are from marginalized communities are all women who have experienced some uh, form of othering or alienation in their, in their previous human lives. And, but but now as a vampire, they have that ability and a power to be able to protect themselves and protect other women who are other situations. And bit is a really interesting film because the theme is about power. It is about these internal struggles that we have in taking control of one's identity and moving away from the feeling of powerlessness. And that's what happened to Duke. Mm -hmm. What's so important about Duke's character is she, when she comes into, when she talks about her story and why she has her vision and her mission, it's because when she came to uh, town to the seventies and to the eight to the seventies to New York, as a young girl, she came, she moved into prostitution to be able to survive, but eventually to live her own life, which was to be a queer woman in the 1980s. And this was something she was completely 100% so happy and so proud of that she had done this, she had done this hard work. And then all of a sudden this male vampire comes along and literally glamors her to be someone completely different he literally uses glamour and essentially i will say like mind control mind control he mind controls her to be a heteronormative woman uh female vampire in his bride in his group of women that he's collected over the years and duke is pissed when she figures it out when she finds that opportunity that moment that his glamour power is not strong enough to keep her from remembering who she is she's like oh shit i have my opportunity i need to take power back i need to take my control back and that's what she does when she uh has her moment with the first bride and they take down vlad and then she goes out with the rule like no fucking boys and no glamoring yeah absolutely she forever is punishing trash men because she's forever punishing vlad and angry about vlad he literally stole her life he stole her identity as a queer woman and made her hit this subservient slave and side piece mm-hmm. like he had three brides classic um but kept her blinded for decades in in her words to service his every depravity so absolutely she our power is taken away our autonomy is taken away that's like our old brides from mm-hmm. 18th 19th century They're just window dressing and a means to the end. Like I said, you start seeing this in Dracula, the film in 1931. The brides are really not there to do anything besides look nice or lure victims to the master, which again, Duke had to do. So she is in control of this girl gang and she wants freedom and equality. There's not maybe 100% equality in it. That happens with Laurel, who is another excellent, the, the transgender character in that movie. But, you know, Duke has zero patience for men. Mm-hmm. And what I, I do, I love this movie. I think, Jess, you were saying earlier or off, off camera, I guess you could say. But yes, Duke <laughs> is, you know, has a kind of this similar interesting upbringing as Clara from yes. Byzantium, right? Very troubled early life. 
very, very struggling and everything and has goes into sex work because there's really no option. It's easy. And Duke is really good at it. And she's like, I, a means to the end, essentially her sex work was a means to an end. She wasn't forced into it. A means to the end. Mm. And it got to a point where she was finally able to be herself. And that was absolutely taken away. So Duke kills Vlad, like you said, takes a moment and consumes him piece by piece as he consumed her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like Clara and, and Duke, like Clara, they're both of them are ruthless. They have their rules, and but they are merciless. And this is because they have experience and understand what men having knowledge, like secret knowledge of something and power is like and how damaging yep. it could be to other groups and to women in particular. Yep. Like when men hold power, we're in danger because we can't fight against it. We have no ability to. And if we try to, we get glamored, we get gaslit into believing something else or something completely different to follow our master's will, uh, wills and every, like you said, every depravity. And that's what she did for him, for Vlad. But now when she has her opportunity, she's like, oh no, we're not going back. And yes, we understand that, that her, she is a little more stubborn in her beliefs. I like, nope, fuck men are bad. All this is bad. We can't have this. Men will churn. They will be a power. And we like, okay, yes, Laurel comes in the picture to try and help change that narrative. But Duke's narrative is just as still as important and inspiring for other women and other female vampiric characters to come out and say, I can be strong. I can be powerless. I can be powerful. I can be ruthless and still have a good heart, which is the same story for Camilla. And it's the same story for Clara. They are still good women. They're still good people. They just know that they have these abilities now to be able to help others. Absolutely. And the helping others is definitely another common thread between those two women, those two Carmilla characters, passion, survival, caring, compassion. Absolutely. Which is quite different from our third movie we're going to talk about next. And that is 2019's Bliss. If you've noticed the trend, these are the triple, the triple threat of the B movies (laughs) of the 2010s that were absolutely fantastic. So the synopsis for Bliss is as follows. In need of creative inspiration, a professionally stagnant and hard partying Los Angeles artist named Desi Donahue recklessly indulges in a series of drug binges. As the narcotics fly out of control, so does her newfound and inexplicable, yet unquenchable craving for blood. As someone who has never been able to control her vices in the first place, Desi is violently consumed by this bloodlust. Yes. So... Bliss is another film that I saw a couple of years ago, just before bit that I absolutely love because I was like, this is another great modern take on the female vampire. Because mm-hmm. like we said before, we've been constantly getting these narratives of them being the brides or we get those kick-ass, badass vampire slayers like Selena in the Underworld series. But this was another take on the female vampire that is also really interesting because while Clara and Duke are very strong and powerful. They are very well composed. They are very much in control and they're very neat and clean in their kills. Yeah. Even though like, yeah. even though Duke has always got blood in her face with a cigarette <laughs> in her mouth, which is pretty fucking hot. Desi is messy. She yeah. is an artist. She is all about using her vampiric origin to fuel her creativity and her lust to be able to find a, a legacy for herself too. Cause she's reached a breaking point in her own career as an artist and she needs inspiration. And we know that throughout the film, she's finding inspiration through uh, heavy uses of drugs. She uses this uh, form of cocaine called Diablo and it just like goes wild and stuff like that. But then she meets up with her, her old friend, Courtney. And oh, you can tell Courtney, those dangerous blondes, those yeah, dangerous blondes. <laughs> she's a hard partier and stuff like that, but they yeah. have this interesting chemistry. They are 
they're, you know, you can tell that Desi is probably bisexual because you can tell that those two have been together in the past before, but have also had some sort of relationship. And they, you know, they uh, do end up in a menage a trois, as you would say, and sharing blood in the sense of like Desi, uh, Courtney bites Desi for the first time and she experiences a euphoria she's never felt before. But then she starts craving more and she wants more and more. And Desi undergoes his own transformation that is so empowering and but it's so overwhelming and so incoming that she has no way to control it. Absolutely. And I find with this one, this one especially, um, it's just like old vampire films, like, of you know, obviously like 20s, 30s, 40s, like the gothic hammer films, mm-hmm. the 70s. 70s and in you know, the 80s things start to get a little hip you yeah. know like near dark and yeah. lost boys and a bit of the 90s things you got interview the vampire and dragon so things kind of go back to the gothic kind of romance but they're gothic they're moody they're broody they're oh, atmospheric oh. they're still sexual a lot of them but bliss is different because it's like very hip yes. and cool and like music is a huge factor in this there's a lot of style a lot of aesthetics it's also highly highly sexual um i feel i i, I wrote down neon indulgence <laughs> that is this movie and it's so wonderful but desi as our carmilla character absolutely she's this artist she lives alone she drinks she does drugs she has casual sex she has a lot of rage issues. She gets into fights. She's a hostile woman. <laughs> I like her because I like those messy kind of volatile women. Mm. Um, but she's not generally like a likable. I'll put in quotations, folks, because yeah. that's kind of subjective and whatnot. Really what is likable anyways, but quote unquote likable. Like Duke, I could see being like, I root for Duke. Absolutely. But she's like, just, just very cool. You know, Duke's Clara's. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But Desi's just all over the place. Right. She mm-hmm. even says like, after that first bite, that euphoria of everything, it, she says, it was like, I was possessed. And then she just like, keeps rolling with this euphoria and also the drugs that are given this euphoria. So she's kind of going back and forth of like, I'm at, I'm loving these drugs and it's helping me create our, her latest like masterpiece. Right. But she takes no shit. She's very work oriented. She's agitated. She's driven. I would say she channels the predatory nature of Camilla, but our rebellious yes. nature of yes. Lilith. Yes. I was going to say that. Yes. She is the dark side of Camilla. Like she is the dark, messy side of being the female vampire, the very uh, visceral side. Cause there's even points yeah. in the original Carmilla story where Laura wakes up in the middle of the night and sees just Carmilla dressed in blood or she'll make scenes of like this like, you know the ugliness of all of a sudden like Carmilla's face would look like rageful and so like that and that yeah. is Desi that is yeah. like when Desi starts going into her like vampiric form and her transformation she is uncontrollable and she is um sexual she but she is also a predatory and like you said she is that, that dark feminine energy that dark uh side of the of the female vampire that yes they can be very cold calculating and collective and can hold uh, power with on their own but at the same time too though it can also be very uh wild and untamed and um absolutely yeah, because in exactly. the end, they're still monsters. We're not saying female vampires aren't monsters. They're <laughs> wonderful, inspiring well, yes. monsters. <laughs> but that's, this is like, yeah, the, so Desi's kind of like our monstrous female vampire. The other two are, yeah, like you said, they're, they have plans, they have goals, they have uh-huh. things they want to do, and it ends up being survival. But Desi isn't about that. It's She's just this, this fear, sorry, this free-spirited woman. And maybe it comes back to, you know, there's themes of, you know, vampirism as um, like a metaphor for addiction in this, which mm-hmm. is not something we'll get into. That's a theme for another day. But 
you know, there's that creativity, her bloodlust fuels her, her artistry and everything. But what's interesting is at one point in the movie, I think it's um, Clive, her lover, boyfriend, casual, whatever, her fling. He's like, Des, are you alive? And she says, barely. But then later on, close to the end of the movie... Um, and it was him again, besides him saying like, what are you, the fucking lost boys? Maybe <laughs> laugh. <laughs> so I like when vampire movies exist in vampire movies. Yeah, so yeah, we can, yeah. we get it. You're like, oh, I know mm-hmm. this is a vampire. Mm-hmm. But he says to her, he's like, do you think it's the bliss or like the drugs or the mm-hmm. blood? And she says, it's me. Yes. Right. And that both things, like in the sense of like, you know, uh, the drug and the blood is kind of helping her connect to the to the source within her that's allowing her to break through those barriers and those walls. And often um, a lot of creative people feel that they feel blocked. They feel these barriers in the walls. And so they look for other things to kind of help break them open and they can move forward for Desi. She had to go to the extent of becoming a vampire and drinking other, other blood. And then the art that she creates is this amazing figure of as these symbols of, you know, both Kelly and I watching the film, we've both seen Lilith, Baphomet. We're like this freedom of this expression of this, it, like, it almost looks like a hellscape picture, but at the same time, too, there's so much power in it, uh, the this, this sense of um, very visceral energy, because even then, when she's painting that scene, she's painting in literally blood in a viscera from having <laughs> killed two other vampires who try to keep her in control. They're like, no, no, yeah. no, you, you are out of control. We need to, like stop you and she's like no yeah. no no i'm not done yet i don't care if i die i want my legacy to be in this painting so the end of the movie yeah. dancing in blood and paint and a viscera yeah. and you're like this is yeah <laughs> yeah the ending is very frenetic and i love that but like desi comes back to life in this movie the vampirism mm-hmm. it's transformative again she takes it to a very high octane messy place but she comes back to life metaphorically it's just very erotic but again her agency her power like these females vampires don't just have supernatural power but it's the power of knowing who you are and having confidence and that's what these modern vampires have over our brides who were literal like nothing they were blank canvases they were just nothing they were just pretty girls right this movie is a drug and blood fueled neon nightmare and this again kind of carmilla like she's alluring but also kind of repulsive yes she's Mm. drenched in blood she's ripping heads off (laughs) like she's just jumping like a feral animal on people to kill and she's out of control the aspect of keeping you know vampires in well in any kind of movie is like we can't be too overt because we want to actually keep killing humans and live our (laughs) lives so if you're of control that's going to tarnish it for the rest of us yeah exactly and that was like through all three of these movies and even the sense of like starting from the idea of Carmilla is this idea of transformation becoming a vampire or or, you know in in all their cases they were able to transform and gave them the power and the abilities they didn't have before and now is their decision on how they want to use those powers and abilities right and not allow themselves to be um victims to other men again and which is what we want to see in our Carmilla figure Uh, you know sadly in our actual novel Carmilla is sadly executed because they she is found out and she is captured but at the same time too though we're not forgetting the type of narratives and tropes that she's left for other female vampires that we didn't see after that we once we got dracula then we thought oh female vampires are always the the subservient brides of 
the master always. And then we go back to Carmela. I'm like, wait, wait, this female vampire, like she was seductive. She was interesting. She talked, she was, you know, very in control. She was able to kind of use mind games to get people to understand. And she's like, no, 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 I'm just a sick woman. I'm fine. You know, you know, she had agency and that's what we lost when we didn't get to see that. But now we're seeing that again with our female vampires. Absolutely. And on, on this rewatch of bliss, I noticed a really interesting thing about Desi's final painting. And I was like, this is very reminiscent (laughs) of the Baphomet and relevant to tonight's talk through the satanic estate. We thought we'd briefly mention this because it was really interesting to me. So as we know, since 1856, the name Baphomet has been associated with a sabbatic goat image drawn by Eliphas Levi. So that the Baphomet was kind of contains these binary elements or a symbolism of an equilibrium of opposites, human, animal, male, female, good, and evil, right? A social order, like things being in control. And the arms of the Baphomet say solve or dissolve in Latin or coagula, coagulate, so when it comes to Desi, I would say she sheds her old self to become mm. a vampire, dissolves her old self, for, reforms as a vampire. And the Baphomet, you know, is usually from those uninformed, um, considered an evil or deviant kind of image, but really just about opposites. Good, evil, yeah. like I said, man, woman, a deity that kind of represents some of the universe and naturally opposing forces. So the Baphomet has the right hand up, left hand down. I'm in a video. You can't really see it. You all know this, folks. But in Desi's painting, it does the opposite. So the right hand is down. The left hand is up. But she also has a halo around her head. So it's the opposite. Is this a perversion of the iconic symbol? Is it a symbol of the state of mind or her state as a vampire? I don't know. Is she a savior? Is she a punisher? I'm not sure. It was very, very interesting. That is really what do you think, Jess? Well, I remember when you brought that up and I remember looking at that being like, yes, this is super interesting seeing this idea of Desi um, re- reflecting this kind of opposite image of this equality, but this like nature and this balance and this duel between, you know, um, I don't want to say like good and bad or, you know, evil yeah. and good type thing, but you know what I mean? Because like, but bringing back to our more, uh, to the connections of the more earthly nature mm. of humanity, right? And yeah. that is another element of vampires is we're more, er- they're more earthly. They are not, cre- they're not creatures of super supernatural or well they are creatures of supernatural sorry but they are just mean that they're more earthly because they're the undead they are the ones who are walking around they feed on the of the lifeblood of other humans and of other other beings they are of, a, of an earthly element and thus you know connected back to our original female vampire as always lilith once again another very earthly creature and often um used in a lot of vampire lore and also in a lot of connection to satan as well yeah, so I'm not really sure exactly if the person, like J- Joe Bagos, who, who created this movie, if that was what was in his mind, but it's a really mm. powerful ending image. And, you know, there's these people like maybe crawling their way up to yeah, her. So yeah. that's where I think like, is she a savior? The halo, and there's people coming up. Is vampirism our savior? <laughs> or is she coming to punish because throughout the entire movie, she's not really nice to people overall as a human, but as a vampire, she is just destroying everyone. Well, all people like demanding things of her, wanting things or just, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I like that you bring that up. And I always want to go back and look at that imagery again and, and look at it more. Like that painting in itself is just gorgeous. And I'm like, you know what? Yeah. If I saw something like that, I would definitely feel empowered as a woman to be like, I want it. Yes, exactly. (laughs) If it's real, does it really exist? It must. I want it. Give it to me. (laughs) So 
so I don't know. Perversion, transformative, vampires. What do you folks think? So this was reaching the end of our presentation today, but I wanted to leave at least one little quote about female vampires. The vampire holds up a mirror and shows us everything we want to deny and thrust aside. We become abject when we deny ourselves a full range of emotion that we are capable of, and we object women when we deny them the full scope of motivation that they are capable of. So that ends our presentation on the monstrous female vampire or the rise of Carmilla. Thank you so much for joining us and watching us today. We would like to remind you to follow us on our website, spinstersofhorror.com. On all of social media, you can just type in Spinsters of Horror and you will find us. If you'd like to use Facebook, we have a Facebook group called the Spinsters of Horror Coven. Come hang out with us. <laughs> As well, we also have a letterbox account, so you can check out some of the movies that we watch for our podcast and the ratings that we give them. And we also have a YouTube page where we have press pre presentations that we've done for the Satanic Estate, the Final Girls Berlin Festival, and just other random venues that we've done talking about various elements and themes in horror films. And you can also catch our podcast, I put on your podcast, on all past podcasting apps. And so please, when you do find it, please go and give us some listens and rate and review us. So until then, remember, the future of fear is female. <laughs> <laughs>